Part two, sections ten through fourteen of All Things Are Possible by Lev Shestov, translated by S. S. Kotelyansky, eighteen eighty eight to nineteen fifty five. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Expatriate in Bangor, Maine. Ten. Fame, a thread from everyone, and the naked will have a shirt. There is no beggar but has his thread of cotton and he will not grudge it to a naked man no nor even to a fully dressed one but will bestow it on the first comer the poor who want to forget their poverty are very ready with their threads moreover they prefer to give them to the rich rather than to a fellow tramp to load the rich with benefits must not one be very rich indeed that is why fame is so easily got an ambitious person asks admiration and respect from the crowd and is rarely denied the mob feel that their throats are their own and their arms are strong why not vociferate and clap seeing that you can turn the head not only of a beggar like yourself but of a future hero god knows how almighty a person the humiliated citizen who has hitherto been hauled off to the police station if he shouted suddenly feels that his throat has acquired a new value never before has any one given a rap for his worthless opinion and now seven cities are ready to quarrel for it as for the right to claim homer the citizen is delighted he shouts at the top of his voice and is ready to throw all his possessions after his shouts so the hero is satisfied the greater the shout the deeper his belief in himself and his mission what will a hero not believe for he forgets so soon the elements of which his fame and riches are made heroes usually are convinced that they set out on their noble career not to beg shouts from beggars but to heap blessings on mankind if they could only call to mind with what beating hearts they awaited their first applause their first alms how timidly they curried favour with ragged beggars perhaps they would speak less assuredly of their own merits but our memory is fully acquainted with herbert spencer and his law of adaptability and thus many a worthy man goes gaily on in full belief in his own stupendous virtue eleven in defence of righteousness inexperienced and ingenuous people see in righteousness merely a burden which lofty people have assumed out of respect for law or for some other high and inexplicable reason but a righteous man has not only duties but rights true sometimes when the law is against him he has to compromise yet how rarely does the law desert him no cruelty matters in him so long as he does not infringe the statutes nay he will ascribe his cruelty as a merit to himself since he acts out of no personal considerations but in the name of sacred justice no matter what he may do once he is sanctioned he sees in his actions only merit 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 modesty forbids him to say too much but if he were to let go what a luxurious panegyric he might deliver to himself remembering his works he praises himself at all times not aloud but inwardly the nature of virtue demands it man must rejoice in his morality and ever keep it in mind and after that people declare that it is hard to be righteous whatever the other virtues may be certainly righteousness has its selfish side as a rule it is decidedly worth while to make considerable sacrifices in order later on to enjoy in calm confidence 
all that surety and those rights bestowed on a man by morality and public approval look at a german who has paid his contribution to a society for the assistance of the indigent not one stray farthing will he give not to a poor wretch who is starving before his eyes and in this he feels right this is righteousness out and out pay your tax and enjoy the privileges of a high-principled man so righteousness is much in vogue with cultured commercial nations russians have not quite got there they are afraid of the exactions of righteousness not guessing the enormous advantages derived a russian has a permanent relationship with his conscience which costs him far more than the most moral german or even englishman has to pay for his righteousness twelve the best way of getting rid of tedious played-out truths is to stop paying them the tribute of respect and to treat them with a touch of easy familiarity and derision to put into brackets as dostoevsky did such words as good self-sacrifice progress and so on will alone achieve you much more than many brilliant arguments would do whilst you still contest a certain truth you still believe in it and this even the least penetrating individual will perceive but if you favour it with no serious attention and only throw out a scornful remark now and then the result is different it is evident you have ceased to be afraid of the old truth you no longer respect it and this sets people thinking thirteen four walls armchair philosophy is being condemned rightly an armchair thinker is busy deciding on everything that is taking place in the world the state of the world market the existence of a world soul wireless telegraphy and the life after death the cave dweller and the perfectibility of man and so on and so on his chief business is so to select his statements that there shall be no internal contradiction and this will give an appearance of truth such work which is quite amusing and even interesting leads at last to very poor results surely verisimilitudes of truth are not truth nor have necessarily anything in common with truth again a man who undertakes to talk of everything probably knows nothing thus a swan can fly and walk and swim but it flies indifferently walks badly and swims poorly an armchair philosopher enclosed by four walls sees nothing but those four walls and yet of these precisely he does not choose to speak if by accident he suddenly realized them and spoke of them his philosophy might acquire an enormous value this may happen when a study is converted into a prison the same four walls but impossible not to think of them whatever the prisoner turns his mind to homer the greek persian wars the future world peace the bygone geological cataclysms still the four walls enclose it all the calm of the study supplanted by the pathos of imprisonment the prisoner has no more contact with the world and no less but now he no longer slumbers and has greyish dreams called world conceptions he is wide awake and strenuously living his philosophy is worth hearing but man is not distinguished for his powers of discrimination he sees solitude in four walls and says a study he dreams of the market-place where there is noise and jostling physical bustle and decides that there alone life is to be met he is wrong as usual in the market-place among the crowd do not men sleep their deadest sleep and is not the keenest spiritual activity taking place in seclusion fourteen 
the spartans made their helots drunk as an example and warning to their noble youths a good method no doubt but what are we of the twentieth century to do whom shall we make drunk we have no slaves so we have instituted a higher literature novels and stories describe drunken dissolute men and paint them in such horrid colours that every reader feels all his desire for vice depart from him unfortunately only our russians are either too conscientious or not sufficiently rectilinear in their minds instead of showing the drunken helot as an object of repugnance as the spartans did they try to describe vice truthfully realism has taken hold indeed why make a fuss what does it matter if the writer's description is a little more or less ugly than the event was justice invented that everything even evil should be kept intact surely evil must be simply rooted out banned placed outside the pale the spartans did not stand on ceremony with living men and yet our novelists are afraid of being unjust to imaginary drunken helots and so to speak out of humane feeling too how naive one must be to accept such a justification yet everybody accepts it tolstoy alone towards the end guessed that humanitarianism is only a pretext in this case and that we russians have described vice not only for the purpose of scaring our readers in modern masters the word vice arouses not disgust but insatiable curiosity perhaps the wicked thing has been persecuted in vain like so many other good things perhaps it should have been studied perhaps it held mysteries on the strength of this perhaps morality was gradually abandoned and tolstoy remained almost alone in his indignation realism reigns and a drunken helot arouses envy in timid readers who do not know where to put their trust whether in the traditional rules or in the appeal of the master a drunken helot an ideal what have we come to were it not better to have stuck to lycurgus have we not paid too dearly for our progress many people think we have paid too dearly not to mention tolstoy who is now no longer taken quite seriously though still accounted a great man any mediocre journalist enjoys greater influence than this master writer of the russian land it is inevitable tolstoy insists on thinking about things which are nobody's concern he has long since abandoned this world and does he continue to exist in any other a difficult question tolstoy writes books and letters therefore he exists this inference once so convincing now has hardly any effect on us particularly if we take into account what it is that tolstoy writes in several of his last letters he expresses opinions which surely have no meaning for an ordinary man they can be summed up in a few words tolstoy professes an extreme egoism solipsism solusipsism that is in his old age after infinite attempts to love his neighbour he comes to the conclusion that not only is it impossible to love one's neighbour but that there is no neighbour that in all the world tolstoy alone exists that there is even no world but only tolstoy a view so obviously absurd that it is not worth refuting by the way there is also no possibility of refuting it unless you admit that logical inferences are non-binding solipsism dogged tolstoy already in early youth but at that time he did not know what to do with the impertinent oppressive idea so he ignored it finally he came to it the older a man becomes the more he learns how to make use of impertinent ideas 
Fairly recently Tolstoy could pronounce such a dictum. Christ taught men not to do stupid things. Who but Tolstoy could have ventured on such an interpretation of the Gospels? Why have we all held, all of us but Tolstoy, that these words contain the greatest blasphemy on Christ and his teaching? But it was Tolstoy's last desperate attempt to save himself from solipsism, without at the same time flying in the face of logic. Even Christ appeared among men only to teach them common sense. Whence follows that mad thoughts may be rejected with an easy conscience, and the advantage, as usual, remains with the wholesome, reasonable, sensible thoughts. There is room for good and for reason. Good is self-understood and need not be explained. If only good existed in the world, there would exist no questions, neither simple nor ultimate. This is why youth never questions. What indeed should it question? The song of the nightingale? The morning of May? Happy laughter? All the predicates of youth? Do these need interpretation? On the contrary, any explanation is reduced to these. The proper questions arise only on contact with evil. A hawk struck a nightingale, flowers withered, Boreas froze laughing youth, and in terror our questions arose. That is evil. The ancients were right. Not in vain is our earth called a veil of tears and sorrow. And once questions are started, it is impossible and unseemly to hurry the answers, still less anticipate the questions. The nightingale is dead and will sing no longer. The listener is frozen to death and can hear no more songs. The situation is so palpably absurd that only with the intention of getting rid of the question at any cost will one strive for a sensible answer. The answer must be absurd. If you don't want it, don't question. But if you must question, then be ready beforehand to reconcile yourself with something like solipsism or modern realism. Thought is in a dilemma, and dare not take the leap to get out. We laugh at philosophy, and as long as possible avoid evil but nearly all men feel the intolerable cramp of such a situation, and each at his risk ventures to swim to shore on some more or less witty theory. A few courageous ones speak the truth, but they are neither understood nor respected. When a man's words show the depth of the pain through which he has passed, he is not indeed condemned, but the world begins to talk of his tragic state of soul and to take on a mournful look fitting to the occasion. Others more scrupulous feel that phrases and mournful looks are unfitting, yet they cannot dwell at length on the tragedies of outsiders, so they take on an exaggeratedly stern bearing, as if to say, we feel deeply, but we do not wish to show our feeling. They really feel nothing, only want to make others believe how sensitive and modest they are. At times this leads to curious results, even in writers of the first order of renown. Thus, Anatole France, the inventor of that most charming smile, which is intended to convince men that he feels everything and understands everything, but does not cry out, because that would not be fitting, in one of his novels takes upon himself the noble role of advocate of the victims of a crime against the criminal. Our time, he says, out of pity to the criminal, forgets the sufferings of his victim. This, I repeat, is one of the most curious misrepresentations of modern endeavor. It is true we in Russia talk a good deal about compassion, particularly to criminals. And Anatole France is by no means the only man who thinks that our distinguishing characteristic is extreme sensitiveness and tender-heartedness. 
but as a matter of fact the modern man who thinks for himself is not drawn to the criminal by a sense of compassion which would incontestably be better applied to the victim but by curiosity or if you like inquisitiveness for thousands of years man has sought to solve the great mystery of life through a god conception with theodicy and metaphysical theories as a result both of which deny the possibility of a mystery theodicy has long ago wearied us the mechanistic theories which contend that there is nothing special in life that its appearance and disappearance depend on the same laws as those of the conservation of energy and the indestructibility of matter these look more plausible at first sight but people do not take to them and no theory can survive men's reluctance to believe in it in a word good has not justified the expectations placed on it reason has done no better so overwrought mankind has turned from its old idols and enthroned madness and evil the smiling anatole argues and proves proves excellently but who does not know what his proofs amount to and who wants them it may be our children will take fright at the task we have undertaken will call us squandering parents and will set themselves again to heaping up treasures spiritual and material again they will believe in ideals progress and such like for my own part i have hardly any doubt of it solipsism and the cult of groundlessness are not lasting and most of all they are not to be handed down the final triumph in life as in old comedies rests with goodness and common sense history has known many epochs like ours and gone through with them degeneration follows on the heels of immoderate curiosity and sweeps away all refined and exaggeratedly well-informed individuals men of genius have no posterity or their children are idiots not for nothing is nature so majestically serene she has hidden her secrets well enough which is not surprising considering how unscrupulous she is no despot not the greatest villain on earth has ever wielded power with the cruelty and heartlessness of nature the least violation of her laws and the severest punishment follows disease deformity madness death what has not our common mother contrived to keep us in subjection true certain optimists think that nature does not punish us but educates us so tolstoy sees it death and sufferings like animated scarecrows boo at man and drive him into the one way of life open to him for life is subject to its own law of reason not a bad method of upbringing exactly like using wolves and bears unfortunate man bolting from one booing monster is not always able in time to dodge into the one correct way and dashes straight into the maw of another beast of prey then what and this often happens without disparagement of the optimists we may say that sooner or later it happens to every man after which no more running you won't tear yourself out of the claws of madness or disease only one thing is left in spite of traditions theodicy wiseacres and most of all in spite of oneself to go on praising mother nature and her great goodness let future generations reject us let history stigmatize our names as the name of traitors to the human cause still we will compose hymns to deformity destruction madness chaos darkness and after that let the grass grow end of part two section fourteen recording by expatriate in bangor maine